Hey everyone, and welcome to the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. This is episode 55, my name is Matt, and joining me on the cast today, my one and only beautiful co-host, Mr. Dan. Ladies. I, I'm not used to only introducing you, so I just use the same things that I usually say about Tiff. That's fine. I've been called cute before. That's, <laughs> that's a step up. That's a step up for me, so I'm happy. It is just Dan and I today. Tiff had some family obligations. Nothing bad. She's just out partying with her dad. So Dan and I get to uh, do a little family thing of our own and run episode 55. All right. So in case you don't know where to find us or who we are, you can do so at facebook.com slash League of Nonsensical Gamers. You can always shoot us an email at podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com. Head on over to guild.nonsensicalgamers.com to travel to BGG Guild number 2077 and join in the conversation. You can also find us on places like Twitter and Instagram. And before we get into our show, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Tasty Minstrel Games. You can check them out at playtmg.com. And Dan, you have the Oracle of Delphi in hand. Have you punched it? Have you read it? I've done both, and it sounds interesting for a Feld. It's a race game, and it seems a little bit more, just again, on cursory review of the rules, it seems a little more forgiving than most of his games. So this might be a good kind of gateway into Feld for those who have been a little bit scared in the past. So I'm really interested to try it out. It seems like it's got a really cool um, dice mechanic that the action system hinges on and... It's got a little bit of pickup deliver and traversing this giant board. It's supposed to be like an adventure. So we shall see. Very cool. So we will hopefully be chatting about that soon in an upcoming episode and maybe even chatting about some of the other TMG releases like Ponzi Scheme and the Orleans expansion. So stay tuned here for more about TMG and thank you for their sponsorship. All right, Dan. So we are at the helm today and in true fashion, we have very little planned. Yep. But at the same time, we have a lot planned because we are going to do a first impressions what we've been playing episode where we have a ton of games that we've only played once. We're going to dig in and chat a little bit about what we think of those. And for all of the Dan fans out there, a lot of them are heavy Euros. Dan fans. I like that. That's good. Yeah. Why have we not coined that before? Uh, I don't know. It rhymes. So I'm sure somebody's done that. It's like the band in old school is the Dan band. Exactly. Oh, we should have a Dan band. Maybe a Dan band. I'm okay with that. That'd be cool. Yeah. No, I think <laughs> I think it's interesting. I mean, obviously, as reviewers, we want to play games as many times as possible before kind of delving into them. But in today's market, first impression is so crucial. And I think it's it's always interesting. I know Matt and I have kind of honed our gaming taste to the point where we can usually tell after a first play, sometimes even during the first play, whether or not this game is, number one, going to stick in our collection, and number two, we want to play it a second time. Yeah, I think first impression has become a a viable form of, I don't know, something to, to strive for when you're, when you're publishing a game because you need to grab them. There's so many options on the market right now in the board game space that you really need to catch people with something either unique or... I don't know, even colorful. Some people just have ADD. So it's like, oh, look at the kitty. And, you know, as we get into some of these games that we're talking about, you just, you placed a fairly big order of Essen games. Uh, I know you sold all of your Gen Con games based on some first impressions and snatched up some Essen games, but even that big order is 
a very very tiny subset of you know, what like 700 games that came out so yep those first impressions are important to check out so it is not a this is not in lieu of any kind of deeper critical review but definitely we've been playing a slew of games and if dan's gonna buy 10 games at a time and i'm gonna buy 10 games at a time we're gonna try to get them played so sometimes that results in single plays for the record i'm done buying games for the year I, I told myself and my wife <laughs> that as soon as she saw that giant box roll in from Germany, I was done. And I, I should be because I have so much to hold me over until the new year. So Yeah, but new things keep coming, Dan. Uh, these the, these games that I bought, as we talked about on the, the show, like the Feast Rodents, the, um, the Oracles of Delphi, the Great Western Trails, like these were the ones I was itching for when we did our... 2016 preview episode back in yep. like January, February. So I'm content. I think I will be plenty content. And I've also done some really big trades in the last week. And so I've got a stack of about 12, 13 new games that just rolled in in the new last week. So plenty. Yes, that should carry us through. So without further ado, let's jump into our first game. I'll, I'll let you pick, Dan. What do you want to chat about first? Let's just go with the beast, the old elephant in the room. The old Feast for Odin. Oh my. The monstrosity that is. It might be the only game we talk about today. No, I think we're good. So we broke out Feast for Odin this past weekend. Uh, We played a three-player game. Myself, Matt, and our buddy Smee the Pirate. And so for those who don't know, this is Uwe Rosenberg's uh, latest and greatest giant paperweight of a game. This box is massive. I'm talking like maybe like two lahavs stacked on top of each other as far as the depth of the box. And the weight, I think, is upwards of like 10 pounds or something. It's just a lot. This game is you are, I don't know, Viking clan leaders planning your little village, going out and hunting, pillaging, whaling, um, gathering food, raising animals, exploring new little islands. Um, That's a lot of theme for placing dudes on a board and then placing puzzle pieces on set boards which is the underlying mechanical aspect yeah it's just patchwork and agricola put together yes which is kind of awesome and pretty i guess what are we gonna say i don't i don't want to say ingenious but i'd say intuitive not intuitive that's not the word i wanted either man innovative innovative yeah something something that started with i n yes progressive this is very early and we were up till 4 a.m last night so (laughs) let's just talk Let's first talk presentation, all right? Because I just want to kind of sum up my awe at opening this box, okay? So I open this box, and there is 16 punch boards. And the angels cry out from heaven in this heavenly kind of like joyous to the world, blowing their trumpets. I am ecstatic because I love punching things. And I pull that out, and then it gets even better. Because the lovely folks at Z-Man slash Feuderland, or Feuderland, Feuderland, I don't know. I don't know. I'll say it wrong. Yeah, go ahead. Use an accent for that one. Yeah, they give you two trays as well to keep all the little puzzle pieces. Because each, there's varying sizes of puzzle pieces. Think patchwork, but on a smaller scale. And these two trays themselves are awesome. Because I would hate to have to unbag these things and have them all scattered out on the table. It's nice. You can just pull out the trays, pop the lid. Everything's right there by size, order, and color. Boom. So that was a really nice touch. So kudos to the folks um, at the publishing house for that. It's got some dice, which we'll talk about. It's got 
the little islands you can explore. It's got your player boards, and it's got the the village board thing, which is 61 actions in total on this board. And they are grouped in different kind of thematic ways based on like going to the market, going hunting, going fishing, going all those sorts of things. I was, I was, yeah, I fell in love instantly as soon as I opened the box. My wife laughed because I'm not even lying. I did turn down the lights and kind of really got in the mood before punching this. Like I changed clothes. You do weird things with your board games. <laughs> I got it. I mean, I got it. I mean, I didn't put on like a, a you know. You put on a robe. robe. I didn't put any lingerie on. Yeah, or like de-robe and then put on a robe. I just put on my pajamas. I sat on the couch. You sat on the couch for all this? I can't punch sitting like that. This is a this is like a manufacturing process to get this thing back out of the box. It is, but I, I what I do is I sit on the couch and I pull up my ottoman so that uh. I can have... I had some Sunday night football going on in the background on mute. And it was just, I was in heaven, dude. It was awesome. But this game is a monstrosity. I think I think it was uh, Craig over at Botch Games was telling us that somebody weighed their unpunched sprues. So the, the extra, the cardboard after you punch everything. And that alone weighed two pounds. The, the trash this game produces <laughs> weighs as much as a regular game. Yeah, and, and please recycle, people. This could save the planet, this game alone, everyone punching it. That's true. <laughs> can make a lot of paper mache houses out of this thing. Yeah. All right, so that I just wanted to get that out of the way. Matt, I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about gameplay and how it plays so that you, you don't have to listen to me talking for the next so that I can talk to? 30 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that the interesting thing about Feast for Odin is that it's actually a fairly simplistic system full of kind of mechanisms that we're familiar with. So like I said, it's Agricola meets patchwork in the sense that you have action selection where you are, I mean, I guess it's worker placement action selection where you have a set number of little Vikings and you get a new Viking each turn. So your amount of actions available increases throughout the rounds the board is broken up into four columns, and those are the cost of workers. So one worker, two worker, three worker, and four worker actions. If you place that many workers, you can take that action. And what those actions do um, within the columns, the columns and rows, so if you look at the intersection, uh, each row is basically incrementally better depending on how many workers you place. So one might give you a couple of fish, and one might give you a couple of fish and something better and some one might give you an upgrade action and a fish and something that you know so it, it compounds like that and what you're trying to do is gather resource chits kind of thing so you've got food luxury goods regular goods and something else well it's, it's goods and equipment and then equipment good, and then gotcha. the food so it's food and equipment um and food is goods broken and down luxury into, goods yeah food is broken down into like harvested goods and animal products and then equipment is broken down into like tools and treasure or something like that so there's permutations there but essentially you gather those tokens and they're different sizes they go i think as small as like a one by two so one one square by two squares all the way up to a four by four or something like that three by four or something like that yeah the cow is three by four i think yeah and then you've got all those awkward shaped treasure tiles exactly so that's where your patchwork element comes in when you gather these tokens you have to toe the balance between using those spending those tokens and resources to do other things like build boats or convert goods into better goods or um, 
buy feed your people and buy other things or you can convert them into things that go onto your player board and much like patchwork where uncovered spots give you negative points your player board is covered in little minus one point slots so you want to convert some of your resources and place them onto your board now you can't use them for other purposes they're basically you know point generation at that at that point but you're trying to toe the balance between you know feeding your people gathering things that allow you to do more things and negating those negative points and then there's placement rules on top of that where things might not be allowed to go adjacent to each other or things might have to be in a certain way or or turned a certain way so that's a whole nother element but long story short it's actually fairly simplistic put your workers out grab the action you want get the tokens put the tokens on your board the issue is that there's 61 actions open to you at one time and how does that feel dan uh, I would say it was a bit overwhelming. I mean, it's 61 actions. And like you mentioned, like they're all kind of varying permutations of each other that scale based on the worker requirements. So the ones are not as good as the twos versus the three spots. But yeah, it was it was slightly overwhelming at first. I'm not going to lie. And that's that's not to say it was, again, difficult. It, everything was easy to grok. The sim- symbolism was pretty straightforward. Even if it wasn't, the game came with an almanac of every card and space in the game that pretty well explained everything. For me, it was just a, a, a matter of, and this is a first play, so it's just a matter of kind of absorbing the system, absorbing the mechanics, seeing the inner workings. It was it was basically everything you love about a Uwe Rosenberg resource conversion game mixed with the spatial element of like the patchwork game that he has it's like all of uve in a box it is and and even like you throw in so agricola then you have like occupation cards which give you these little bonuses and they're not as i don't think they're as um they don't force you in such a hard fast direction as they do in agricola sometimes you could just put them out for points which is what i was doing because i drew into a bunch of crap but um, for instance, Smee got a small little kind of tiny engine going with his occupation cards, which kind of drove his strategy. So there was, there's some um, variability in those as well. And I mean, there's 61 spots, and I think there was like 174 occupation cards that you could eventually play with that are all different. Yes, and they're all yeah, they're all different in some way. Yeah. So I, I think overwhelmed was the the word I'd use, but I, I wouldn't say it, it wasn't. A, it's not a negative connotation of the word it's just a i don't know what i want to do there's so many cool things i want to do and so few resources and so few of this to do it in um there was a huge kind of tension playing on my brain like every round of the game which was pretty awesome and our game ran well over three and a half hours and largely due to me because i would just freeze up yes it's not that i didn't it's not that i didn't know what i wanted to do it's that i had to prioritize because even though one person actions are technically not as good as, you know, three, four person actions when you put your little Viking meeples down, every space has value. And there's value of weighing, you know, lesser actions. This still gets me something and I'm not spending as much. It lets me do more actions because I'm stretching everyone a little bit further versus I can do this one big thing, but that's going to be one of the only things I do this round. So for me, I kept freezing up and trying to evaluate how much is a worker worth. You know, in this instance, you really have to evaluate it every turn. 
which is really cool. It was a great thing. It flew by, but I kept locking up because I couldn't couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. Yeah, and I think a lot of that had to do with just it being a first play because, like you mentioned when you were describing the rules, like the placement rules and the upgrading rules. So you can upgrade like so the colors are, go from orange to red and then green to blue, and that's kind of the scaling. And then when you upgrade, so you could upgrade an orange to a red or a red to a green or a green to a blue. And each of those colors, depending on the board you're placing those that color tile on, has a different placement restriction. So all of this is playing on your head, and you're trying to do it with, you know, your little Viking dudes, how best to do it. There's a timing element in that. Obviously, only one worker or only one person can occupy each space. So I need to get to this space now before Matt does because I see Matt maybe wanting to upgrade as well and things like that. So, yeah, it was just a lot to crunch at first. But like Matt said, it, it flew by. It wasn't like a painful three and a half hours. It was a enjoyable, you know, we were all involved in the game, but we could still kind of have a conversation and we were just talking about the game as we were playing it. So it was it was I liked it. I, I, I'll just say that now. I liked it a lot, actually. Um, and I'm looking forward to playing it some more. And I think there are some kind of definitive strategies and paths that you should take. And we were talking about this after we played. You know, what we thought was, in at least in our game, was undervalued or overvalued versus, like, this just didn't seem like a viable option for any of us. And so it really was, there was a lot to kind of explore. And even just debriefing after the game, we all kind of just got into each other's mental state through the different kind of parts of the game and it was it was just interesting to hear how we were all at a different place and then the final score even though we did mess up a rule as far as the upgrading was concerned we we goofed up on the double upgrade spot versus the single upgrade spot yeah but we caught it and we fixed it but it it definitely had a huge play on our um, game and determining the outcome but even with that the scores were within the three of us were all within 12 points of each other doing completely different things. Um, so that's always good. That's always a good feeling. I went cheap. Yeah, Matt awesome. went cheap. I, who the hell knows that I did? I'm not lying. I did a little bit of well, everything. You kind of went, you went emigration a little bit. Yeah, I tried. And to, that I think was what did me in is I didn't. Well, that's the only reason I stayed in the game because I committed to that. But I think I committed to it a little too late and it was costly. And Smee was able to kind of, again, through through goofing up we we did a couple things wrong but he was able to keep pace with me on the emigration side of things um with his boats and um, yeah yeah so a ton to explore in that box and i i don't know if i guess this is what uve strives for at least in his last so you look at like fields of arl fields of arl i would compare uh, fields of arl is like a sandbox game i wouldn't put like every action you take is is not bad in fields of borrow you can do something with pretty much every action you take in my opinion fine in this game i think there are definitive ways you want to focus from game to game i mean the same could be said with Arl. obviously you want to focus on some sort of strategy but there were definitely times in odin where i was like damn it i needed that spot or damn it i needed to do this before i did this there's timing issues i kept screwing up and i kept sending my boats off to emigrate and then i'd try and hunt and i'm like everyone's like you don't have a boat dan i'm like where did my boat go they're like you flipped it i was like son of a mm. yeah <laughs> so i just yeah the timing i kept goofing up on which is fine i'll remember it for sure next time but yeah i'm really looking forward to exploring this one a little bit more <laughs> get it yeah. exploring viking <laughs> <laughs> so the 
the two things that I'm left with after a first play, you know, I obviously really enjoyed the game and I think that it's a very successful system. Two things that I'm looking into exploring. One, maybe an occupation card draft because it kind of suffers from the same thing that Agricola suffers from where if you play the, the random way and just deal things out, they come out a little funky. And then also I want to explore slash if anybody's played this a whole bunch like Travis or anybody else that can explain to me how do you go about getting those other island tiles because in our game we tried to discuss it it just didn't seem feasible to go grab an extra location board Uh, it seemed very dangerous so those are the two things that I'm kind of interested in yeah I kind of get the impression that we focus too much on negating the negative point spots and not on how we could just further our engine and maybe that becomes kind of a consequence of doing that you know because we've focused on the engine and not the negative aspects which is very easy to do because there's all these freaking little negative ones staring you at the face every turn it's like <laughs> negative one negative one and you feel compelled to cover them up yes that's the thing like i'm saying if you can kind of get your brain wrapped around focusing on the engine that you want to get into and doing that um, maybe the the tiles to cover those negative ones will come and the impact of any remaining negative ones will not be as great, you know, because it's, I mean, it's just, maybe it's it's like a feed your worker mechanic, <laughs> but you know what I mean? You're just trying to get by. Exactly. You're just yeah. trying to get by. Maybe not, not necessarily. Not to mention there is a feed your worker mechanic. <laughs> it is. There is. And that was pretty, it was pretty forgiving. It was pretty, pretty simple, yeah, especially no, it's with not the bad. harvest. It's actually, I, I like how it worked because not not to dive back into the game, there's a lot to be said though, where you have to cover up this little row to feed your people and different tiles will fit there and there's some placement rules but also there's this evaluation thing where it's like okay i've got this big hunk of meat that i could upgrade into something and put it on my player board but i have to feed my people and it feels so wasteful so it's it is a very forgiving thing you always have food i don't think anybody suffered the minus three penalty for feed your worker but there was definitely times where I diverted my actions to do to go grab like dedicated food, so I didn't waste my bigger stuff. Yeah, no, yeah, because some of those those tiles cover up more ground than others. And you don't want to waste them feeding your people. You just want to shoot them peas and flax, and then exactly. let, let them get on their way. I mean, <laughs> get, let them get back to the old thing square. <laughs> oh yeah, the thing square. Yeah, I don't I don't know what thing they're referring to i'm sure that has some i need to look that up in the little almanac and see what the history on that was but everyone comes back to the thing square (laughs) all right so we like feast for odin we're looking to dig in more yeah i think that was a given yeah i think i think we all liked it let's uh turn off our brains for a little bit and chat about a game that aeg sent over to us Uh, we got the new dice chucker yeti this is a very light family game where you are trying to explore a mountain and find the mysterious snow monster, the Yeti. And essentially what it is, is a dice rolling... What, how would you describe the dice rolling mechanism, Dan? I don't know. You roll dice and you... The process keeps... of selecting the yeah. faces. I, I, I don't know. I think I think I want to compare it to... And I think I'm getting this game. Picamino. In that like you roll all your dice and then you have to take a specific grouping. So in that game, I believe it's all of the same number. In this game, it's all of one symbol and set those aside. And then you can yeah. re-roll. So if you roll a ton of like 
coins or snow symbols, or I won't say snow symbols because that's wrong. Um, coins or the little Sherpas. Sherpa, Sherpa. <laughs> <laughs> I said that about 400 times during the game. I just kept Yeah, going. you wouldn't stop. You got stuck in a loop. I got stuck in the Team America. So anyone who knows Team America where they run around and they're like, Durka, 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 Durka. So I just kept going Sherpa, 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 like the entire time, throwing up the signal. So all my Team America yeah. fans, you'll know what I'm talking about. We, we loved it. We thought it was hilarious about 300 times in. Yes. Yes. It didn't get old, Sherpa Sherpa. <laughs> yeah, so you're just keeping groupings and then kind of rolling with it. So there's five different symbols, I believe, and you have to select all of one type every time you roll, and you just keep rolling until you've basically selected all of your dice out. And they let you do different things. The Sherpas let you climb the mountain. The tents let you, you know, form a base camp that's higher up the mountain the coins let you buy equipment or photos the snow kind of slows you down locks up your dice and these little yeti footprints you cash in for victory points because you're following the yeti trail so it's super simple you roll your dice you pass them and you score points it's nothing to it but i know that you commented dan it's got great uh visual presentation right yeah so i think we should probably say when you're talking, describing the action. So there is a like there is an actual cardboard mountain in the middle of the little playing board that has three tiers, and you're working to move your little hiker up these three tiers. And the higher he moves up the different tiers, the more those footprint symbols count. So the footprint symbols, um, the tiers act as a multiplier on the number of footprint symbols you work. And then, as Matt mentioned, the tents. They allow your guy to stay up on those different tiers. If you don't roll a certain amount of tents on your roll, so if you just went straight for all footprints and you didn't, you neglected tents, well, then your guy's going to fall all the way back to base camp because he wasn't able to set up tent where he was. So, you know, th- some some theme in that little that little mechanism there, which was kind of cool. Yeah, everyone's got these cool little hiker meeples. You've got a little cardboard tent that you can move along to signify where your base camp is along the different tiers. It's, I, I think for the game, it's necessary. I think you need the different tiers. I guess you could have just, no, I say it that. It could be a track. It could be a track. I take it that back. It could be a simple little track, but they went the extra step. They put this little, like I said, this little cardboard mountain. The little Yeti is cute. Um, so yeah, it was a nice, it was a nice presentation. The art was, um, the art was silly and fun. And I think it has great appeal as a kind of a family casual game dice chucker it was it was brisk we kind of all went about our turns and did that um there is a little pressure luck in that if you rat obviously for the symbols there's pressure luck but if you roll too many storm clouds you start to lock up dice and those dice remain locked up um until your next turn so the people following you don't get to roll as many dice so actually that's a pretty good i didn't even think about that while we were playing i could have like specifically tried to roll storms yeah but i guess no because you don't but specifically they don't benefit yeah. you is the issue you don't specifically try to roll storms because you always set aside storms so yeah similar to like in other games like where like you set aside damage or you set aside like locked dice storm clouds are locked dice and you set them aside um and they have varying degrees of um what they can do based on how many you roll but as i mentioned they can lock up dice for the rest of the, the the table, which may benefit you if you're trying to catch up. I think the coins were kind of a weak point of the game. You use coins to basically buy points, or you can buy some upgrades. The There's only, I don't know, five, six, seven upgrade tiles. There's no real variability in them. They're the same every game. It felt very kind of tacked on. There was no real reason to use them. 
and the other option to use coins is to straight buy victory points. So if you roll enough coins, you can buy a pretty handy, a pretty large amount of victory points, which is kind of how Dan won. I think he bought 20 plus points just because he happened to roll coins. So a little bit of luck in terms of if you're, you're beholden to the dice essentially, but I mean, you can't, you have to know what you're getting into with this game, but it does feel that the coins, that, that whole extra little board with the coins felt a little weird to me. Yeah, they, um, the upgrade tiles for me became a moot point after about like halfway through the game because I wasn't at that point, my brain just turned on to get points, get points, get points. I wasn't really concerned with having a permanent Sherpa die or having a permanent tent symbol. I just kind of rolled. I never at any point felt really out of the game to where I needed these extra symbols. For me, it was just always beneficial to, if I was going to, if I rolled on my first roll, if I rolled three, you know, two or three coins, I said, this is a coin roll. I'm trying to get coins. And then I just buy victory points. And yeah, as Matt said, I bought, the Yeti only got to space 55. So you're chasing the Yeti. The game ends when one of your markers reaches the Yeti. So kind of like a little rattle bones mechanic in a way. So I hit the Yeti and the Yeti was on space 55. And of those 55 points, I bought, 27 of them using coins so it worked out now the footprints could be big points too but the thing with that is it it seemed so much better more beneficial to go coins because the footprints were like a two-prong effort you had to get up the mountain and then you had to stay on the mountain which required dice a lot of effort it required sherpa dice to get up the mountain and then it required tent dice to stay up there and then you had to roll uh, footprints as well and you only get seven dice if no one's locked up any as well so coins were just let's roll coins so i don't know like i said the the upgrade tiles yeah i agree i they really played no part of my thinking i tried it once i bought an extra coin and then i rolled five coins and i just spent it so i had six coins and i got you know, 20 points out of that or whatever I, I i think that part i could do without the upgrade tiles the photo buying thing was fine you could keep the bottom part of that track which was perfectly fine but I think we played it in like 30 minutes, maybe. Yeah. It was quick. It has a couple extra like event tiles that you can add in that either give you positives or negatives depending on which tile comes up. So there's a there's a little bit of stuff yeah. that you can throw it would in. Photograph it's well. a late we family game. like to photograph you know? it. Yeah, it actually it's got great table presence. It's really cool. I think, you know, we'll probably play it a couple of times, maybe write up a review or something like that or at least get a little bit more experience with it. And then I think I'm going to send it along to TIFF because it seems like a good board game club game. Yeah, no, I agree. I think this is really good for young gamers and like, like, you know, families that are playing with young gamers. Yeah. I think it would be a good fit. I don't, what's the MSRP on this thing? Do you know? I think it's around the 35. Okay. It might be, it might come up to 40 just because of that table presence. I wouldn't pay 40 for it. If you could get it for 20, 25, I think that's, that's a good price point. For this game to sit at 40 is too much there's not enough game there for 40 oh you know what 30 bucks and you can get it for 20 online yeah i think 20 online is fair yeah. i think i think there's enough game there to again but this isn't going to be for your hardcore like this isn't something i'm going to be requesting or matt's going to be requesting at game night no um, no but it was fine so. it, was, it was a nice break because we had just played a whole bunch of games so yeah it was a good mind it's a good 1 a.m game yep agreed <laughs> All right, what else do we got that's a little bit heavier, Dan? Let's talk, well, I don't know about heavier, but let's talk Adrenaline. Because okay. this was a game I was looking forward to. 
and I know you were looking forward to, and yeah, so Adrenaline is the new release from Czech Games Edition. Um, this is described as, and plays like, I can confirm, a first-person shooter, but it uses a ton of Euro-style mechanics in your resource management, and there's also area control, okay? The really unique thing about this is, so for those who've never played a first-person shooter in FPS, you're going around the board, you're shooting people and scoring points for it. And there's also objectives you can complete in different game modes like capture the flag or domination, which is rallying around a point and, you know, tagging it or staying there to collect the points kind of thing. So there's all these different things you do in a first person shooter, but I'm pretty sure probably everyone knows what that is. So I'll stop talking about it. This game looks to capture that essence again through a, a number of Euro style mechanics, which is different. So we've played games like frag Matt has frag. And that is just a chaotic dice romp kind of to simulate this first-person shooter. That was an old, I think, Steve Jackson Games, I believe, yeah, did that yeah. back in the like early 2000s or something along those lines when FPSs were really popular. Great theme. I love it. I was so happy to see that Czech Games was going to try your hand at it because as Matt and I were talking yesterday, when we were looking through the catalog, these guys don't really have a bad game. There's no game that really stands out in their catalog to me as, that game's crap. You know what I mean? Now, there's a couple of games that aren't our style, but there's they're all good. Yeah, like I'm not a huge fan of Dungeon Lords. I'm also not a big Galaxy Trucker guy. Um, but like they're not bad games. They're good games. I will play them. I, they're not like in the for shame pile or anything like that. And they that. make Tosh Kalar, which is the best game. They make Tosh Kalar. They make Zolkin. They make Alchemists. Ooh, they yeah. make Dungeon Pets. They make a ton of good stuff. Uh, they make code names, for, for Christ's sake. That's true. <laughs> um, it's the best game. So yeah, I had high hopes for this. I saw a demo kind of briefly at Gen Con. They had it on their table in their dedicated room, but I didn't really kind of understand the the workings and the mechanics that was going on. I just kind of saw people run around saying, ha-ha, and laughing. So it looked like a good time. The unique thing about this, so I mentioned area control was at the heart of this game as one of the central mechanics and scoring systems. The, the cool thing is, is that each person has their own health bar. And the area control is how many hits you got on that person when they die. So, whereas most area controls, you're like trying to take over a piece of the board and dominate that or something along those lines. This is you're trying to dominate the other people. And you're trying to not only dominate one person, you're trying to get yourself on every person. You're trying to inflict damage on everyone because you're at minimum you're going to score a point for having damage on other players so how it works is there's a grid you can set up this board it's double-sided there's two boards and you can put them together to form your your map okay each map has different rooms in it uh, with doors etc so that you can set up for different combinations on each of the map there's three spawn points at each of the spawn points there's three weapons flipped out and at those spawn points, you can grab weapons. The other spaces all have ammo crates so that you can replenish your ammo supply. So how a turn works, it's fairly simple. You get two actions, okay? There's three actions to choose from. You've got move, which is you can move one, two, or three spaces. You've got move and pick up, which allows you to move one space optionally and then pick up something, either a weapon at one of the spawn points or an ammo crate at one of the other uh, room spaces. And then the last one is shoot. So that allows you to use one of your weapons to 
inflict damage on one or more players. So those are the three actions. You can take two of them and you can take the same one twice. Very simple turn structure. Okay. Once you got into the game, the turns really kind of just crank out once you start to learn the weapons and what they do and how you can move, etc. A little bit daunting at first because there's some symbolism and things like that, but we'll get into that in a minute. You know, like I said, you move, you pick up things. So what you're trying to do is each each weapon card. So the weapon cards are the focal points of how you're going to deal damage and score points for the area control mechanism on each player. The cards have a couple of things. They've got a reload value, which is both their buy cost as well as their reload value. After you spend it, you need to pay cubes to bring it back into your hand and reload it. Okay, A really cool kind of simple mechanism. When a card is in your hand, it's loaded. When you play it, you unload it and use its abilities. Okay, Some weapons have, all weapons have a basic effect and then some have either an optional mode, which is like, so think like single shot versus burst shot. And some also have um, optional kind of enhancements to them. So think like a grenade launcher on top of your rifle that you could pay extra for to inflict a different type of damage or a different kind of area of effect. So really cool little system. In your hand, loaded, play it down, unloaded. If you want to reload it at the end of your turn, you have to pay its reload cost out of your ammo box and then you bring it back into your hand, okay? Loved that mechanism. I thought it was just simple and just elegant and a really kind of cool little resource management element of the game. Again, when you pick up crates, you get to reload, so you get to pull ammo back onto your crate and um, your ammo box to use to, again, reload weapons, etc. Then you have these little these special ability cards, which let you, they, they act as like little comboing cards that let you, you can play them before or after your action to teleport to a space or add X damage to your attack and things like that. So then the, the main crux is shooting people. So you've got the cards, when you play it, you shoot it, people take damage. So you give them, you've got these really cool little blood drop tokens in your color and it goes on the other player's player board. So then they, they've got 11 spaces until they're dead. So you just say I did two damage to Matt. Matt now has nine spaces left before he dies. Okay. Am I going too fast? Because I, I, I'm really excited because I like this game. So <laughs> no, I don't think you're going too fast. I think you need to, to bring it home though. <laughs> okay. I'll bring it home. So basically when somebody dies, when somebody gets a kill shot, you, you tally up all the little blood drops on there. Then you score it out um, based on who had the most, second most, third most, etc person who gets the kill shot gets to put their blood drop on this track at the top which is the kill shot track which is another area kind of control the person with the most kill shots at the end gets x points second most etc so those are your main kind of scoring mechanisms either the people when they die or the person who got the kill shot okay at least in the the team deathmatch mode so yeah simple you play in the in the intro version you play till five deaths occur in the normal game you play eight Really cool. Like I said, I, I described some of the mechanics. I really like the reload and you know unload kind of thing. Um, I really liked the the area control on the player boards. Was just a a really unique kind of not not unique in how it was executed, obviously, but just the thinking behind it. Like just wrap turning your brain onto I'm a person. I've been hit by this many people, and they're going to score points for it, kind of thing. Because as I mentioned in the beginning, you want to try and spread your damage as much as you want to get those kill shots. If you can get on everyone's board by traveling around and shooting them all the time, when they all die eventually, because everyone's going to die, you're going to score points that way too. So um, really fun. I, I like, Yeah, I really liked it. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm in the same camp as you. There's a lot of things that I really enjoy about this game. We, I mean, we only played it one time, but the time wasn't bad. The rules description wasn't bad, even though Kel 
Kel kind of like checked out during rules as she normally does. And it was funny because I like having all the rules in the context. But once we got going, I was like, man, this this game is simple. And I think the best thing I can describe it as is like adrenaline does a great job of not getting in your way. The, the structure of the game is built so you can do exactly what you want to do when you want to do it. And what you want to do is shoot people and pick up weapons. And it just lays it out on the table and facilitates exactly what you want to do. And I also love the theme of the game because the weapons make sense. You, and they're all unique. Get, and they're all unique. And this, the symbolism used on the cards, we started, we knew that almost instantly. Before we got done reviewing the cards, we knew kind of what these weapons were able to do. And they all do such cool things. You've got the gravity hammer. You've got the chainsaw. You've got sniper rifles. You've got, you know, your your Halo-style plasma rifles. You've got your Overwatch rocket launchers. And, you know, any kind of FPS that you've played that you're into, this game gives a nod to it, which is really cool. And I was concerned about, you know, we were joking before the game started that we were all just going to focus fire on Ben. But the game manages to without forcing you into a corner it doesn't box you off or restrict you but it it's designed in a way that you don't want to just focus down someone there's there's no really take that element where you're going to hammer someone down and take them out of the game because it's not beneficial it makes more sense to fire at everyone and to take those shots when you can get them and it was just so well done because we started playing and I couldn't wait for my turn I couldn't wait to do a couple combos really quickly and pass along. And I couldn't wait to, you know, string some stuff together or pick up a new weapon. And even on top of that, the ability to customize your loadout because you can pick up the guns that you want to fit your play style. That was cool too. I had, you know, I grabbed a sniper rifle, I grabbed a flamethrower, and I grabbed the power fist. So I had my little suite of, you know, mid-range, medium, and, and close combat. So I, I got this cool little suite. Ben had these crazy control weapons where he could pull people in directions and kind of shuffle them around. And it was cool. It, it, it was just so well done and so simple. It was everything that I wanted a game like Frag to be. Frag is like this crazy dice chucker. And this is, even though it's it's the FPS Euro game, it still feels thematic and it doesn't feel cubey and doesn't feel overly thinky, but it is, you know? I Yeah. It was. I'm I mean, all about this game. I, I, I'm almost hesitant to say an FPS style game is elegant, but it it was. It was just so smooth. And once we got into it, and yeah, I think what I've read is a lot of people have had some trouble with the the symbolism. And I I, I can see so that, good. but I think it's good once you kind of, once it clicks like this means this, then the rest of it all just kind of domino effects. It all falls into place as soon as a new weapon card comes out. You're like, you know, we were reading them at first, but then we were like guessing at them and then double checking them and nine times out of ten we were correct in what we kind of guessed for the new weapons because and it was fun like you said you could you could have a suite of weapons that was tailored to how you wanted to play and just talking about the the resource management piece of it too so each player has three yellow cubes three red cubes and three blue cubes so you wanted to kind of get weapons too that allowed you to fire maybe multiple weapons in a turn or at least reload certain weapons quicker because you had that finite ammo pool in which to you could only ha- you know you could only grab from so you can never have more than three yellow cubes so if all your weapons were yellow cubed 
then you you know you might have some trouble because then you're gonna have to go search out ammo crates to get yellow cute you know things like that yeah. so and it was a really good give and take i think as well as you said is it, it didn't get in your way the game itself because you know they made movement simplistic they made line of sight extremely simplistic and thematic and things like that and it, it was a good give and take i thought it was just going to be this free-for-all but i mean there is that resource management piece where you had to take a turn to go pick up an ammo crate or to go get a new weapon or to move around the board to position yourself to best use the weapons that you had based on how they affected the board etc so it was really cool i was just really bummed i was setting up for that i had all my weapons reloaded and i had three target scopes special cards which would give me three extra damage i was ready to do nine points of damage to ben on my last turn and we played the quick mode, which ends in sudden death. So just as soon as that last kill is over, it stops. But I was ready. Oh, I was so excited to do that. And it was I was so bummed when I couldn't because um, I was just going to lay out my hand and just <laughs> crap on him. So Yeah, and like you said, I think it was mentioned at some point that the game is mostly balanced for those full eight rounds. Yeah, so. it says it right in the rule book on page one. It says, start your first game at this simple five player or five death, sudden death, just to get... A feel for the movement mechanics, the weapons, and things like that. But then you play the the eight kill one, and then the last kill is in this frenzy mode. Oh, that's something we didn't touch on, which was a pretty cool mechanic. The reason it's actually called adrenaline. <laughs> oh yeah, jeez. Yeah. That, so, yeah. so on your 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 area control, your your kill board, so your, or your your health track is split into three different sections, and as you take damage, you're going to increase the effectiveness of certain actions or the the ability to do certain things so once you've taken three damage your pick up and move action or your move and pick up action becomes a little bit better because you're hyped up on adrenaline you can now move twice and grab an ammo crate instead of moving once and grabbing an ammo crate once you get into i think it was like eight or nine damage you can then move and shoot so it adds a move ability before you shoot so it just it, thematically it's because you're all hyped up on adrenaline you've been shot you're wounded you're just like going around in this craze so your um you know your actions increase with how far along the damage track you are um, which i thought was a really nice little touch and they're small additions but they're they're big additions because the board is relatively small and we actually had some concerns when we looked and we said this board is only 12 spaces big and there's five of us you know is it going to kind of be a, a cluster and it was in the sense that someone was always in range. You always had to worry about the guy right around the corner. And with the line of sight, you can actually, you're very mobile and you can see a lot. But that's the fun of the game is that it does kind of press you into each other so that you're always being tactical and being mindful. But the resource management piece tempers that so that you're not always just slugging it out. Sometimes you do just take a turn and collect an ammo crate right next to an opponent because you kind of have to. But the ability to, you know, move twice and pick up or move and shoot, lots of options open up and it it was almost I was bummed when I died because I loved being right on the brink of death cuz I was super mobile and could shoot a lot and and damage a lot of people. And then when I finally died, I was like, uh, "I'm going to be so much slower. I'm it's going to take so much more time to kind of get around. I wanted to be right on the brink of death at all times." It was kind of cool. And a whole other element that we didn't touch on, when you die, you become a less valuable target. You're worth less victory points. And maybe you did mention that, Dan, but you're worth less victory points, so people are less inclined 
to hammer you again. So you get a little reprieve where now you can go deal some damage um, if you just died because the eight-point spot for your your death is no longer there. Now you're less valuable. So really cool balance there. There's also two other game modes in the box that, you know, I want to try domination. I want to capture some flags. There's a turret mode. And this thing could easily, easily expand. Yeah, I would like to see some more maps. I think that was one criticism a lot of people had, as you mentioned, was the maps felt too small. But again, when you're... I, I didn't have an issue with it because the whole point of the game is to deal damage and not necessarily kill everyone. You're trying to spread damage because it's... And that's the thing that I think is so cool is you got to mind bend into that thought, you know, you, that the area control is the people, not the, you know what I mean? It's just such a, yeah, yeah. such a cool little twist on it that just does your head in. You're like, that's genius. <laughs> exactly. So really, uh, really cool. Really successful. I think that this game is way cool. It, the only thing, and I looked this up while we were talking is that it's going to hit that $70 MSRP. Yeah. It's not as a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. And I'm not, the minis are nice. The quality of everything is nice, even though you've got to accept the goofiest artwork ever. Because that smiley face robot is just silly. Destructor. Destructor. Uh, but it's a good production, but 70, 70 feels high. And we've had these issues with Czech games before, especially with like, yeah. what is it, Tash Kalar? It was like 60 bucks, and it's like, why? Yeah, they tempered that down because it yeah. got such poor reception. Now, this game's got some hype, I'd say. I think it's going to do well. But it, you know what, in the game... I wouldn't think twice about $70 because it really was kind of a rush. It's fun. It's just when you put it away and you're counting the components and you're kind of looking at it and you think, I, I don't know, $70 is a lot these days. It's just some cards, a couple cardboard tokens, the tracks, and then the five meeple, yeah. or the five uh, minis. It's not. Yeah. Oh, well, I guess those little drops might be a little more expensive than we, we know. Those they little are, plastic drops. Plastic. Yeah, they're yeah. really nice. Um and they give a nice touch to the track, and it's you can visually see across the the table what everyone has on their kill board. Yeah, yeah, seventies a lot. Game minis, they're great. Seventies a lot, but yeah, so something to consider. You know, I think the game is a lot of fun. I think that it'd definitely be something that I'd like to own. But you know, if Dan's got it, it's not a two copy kind of game. Yeah, because this is a this is a sixty minute game, and I think it's just one of those fun like either start the night out or end it with it. It's like a nice. It's a nice palate cleanse with enough thinking to keep you engaged. Yeah, yeah. Adrenaline. Adrenaline. Check that out. <laughs> All right, Dan, let's do one more. Okay, you pick. All right, well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll do two quick ones because I do want to get, I want to throw my thoughts on Vast out there real quick because you've already talked about it, so we don't have to go in depth. Vast is the fully asymmetric game from... Letter. Leader or letter? I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> letter games. Leader games, letter games. L-E-D-E-R. And... You play, we played a four player game with Craig when he was over for CraigCon East, which was a good time. He taught us all how to play Steve, Kel, Craig, and I. I played the goblins, Craig played the dragon, Kel played the cave, and Steve played the knight. So we did not play with that fifth uh, thief player. And it is a super weird game in a, in a good way. I think I liked it, I had fun. It's really cool to see a completely asymmetric game unfold, and it makes a lot of sense. But I had a lot of questions and concerns as I played. Now, Dan, you've highlighted that playing the goblins may not have been ideal for, maybe for me in general, but for a kind of first play. And Craig kind of said the same thing. He said, wow, next time I teach this, I'm not going to stick 
I don't think I'm going to stick a new player with the goblins. Now, one of us had to play the goblins, so whatever. But I, I don't know. I didn't hate playing the goblins. I just felt that the game in general was very strange. We entered this dynamic where Kel is the cave actually had to make a choice on who she wanted to let win, essentially, because it was either going to be the dragon or the knight, and I was in the mix somewhere there, somewhere I might have been able to win, but she had she had a choice to make, and I felt that that was kind of weird for this fully asymmetric game to come down to Kel kind of gets to pick the winner based on her decision that last turn. Yeah, it's a tough one because it's it's so ambitious of a game. I mean, you're talking five uniquely asynchronous roles that all play completely different but yet they all interlock in how they need to win the game yeah or keep others from winning the game and it's yeah it's it's one of those where it like it it wins on so many levels just again i i applaud the ambition i applaud the ingenuity and the innovation in it i think it's a lot of cool little things interweaved and you know kudos to Patrick and um, David, the designer, for just kind of, I don't know, this game, just kind of dabbling in design myself. This game would have frustrated me. I would have thrown it in the trash, like, um, you know, within two (laughs) weeks. Not because it was a bad game, because it would just frustrate the crap out of me trying to balance this thing. So, again, kudos to those guys. And I I had fun with the game in my my experiences with it. Um, I will say, as you mentioned, the goblins, I don't find them very interesting at all. Um, they are my least favorite element of the game. Yeah. Um, I just think that, especially if you're playing with the knight, there just becomes a point when the knight gets to a certain power and you can't you can't win the game. So, you know, and that could be, depending on how the knight's playing, how well he draws into his things or whatever, you know, that could be, <laughs> you know, with an hour left on the game or it could be with, you know, 15 minutes left on the game and you're just kind of yeah. sitting there putzing around, like running around the shadows, but... The one time I played the goblins, because I, I I don't really want to play them again, Smee was the knight, and Smee's a good player, and Smee got the knight, realized where he could kind of outfox me, because my goal is to kill the knight, and it just, he just got to a level where it was almost insurmountable for me to get there. I could still get there, but it just was not efficient, and it would have taken me way too long to even make a shot at yeah. it. So, yeah, I don't like the goblins at all. Um, I find the, the cave very fun, uh, and the dragon. I have yet to play the knight, but like like I said, uh, kudos all around for that game. It's a step in the right direction for kind of some new exploration in the async environment. Yeah, I mean, I think that overall it's a success, and kudos to yes. the designers. Kudos to Craig for teaching three new players. It's a bear to I, teach. Yeah, it... And I feel a little bit bad because I was, I was not, I don't think I was being a jerk, but I had a lot of questions and I was getting very bothered by the idea that I was playing this game and I, the way that Craig went about it, he decided I'm going to teach you as you play, which I think is the best way to do it because we didn't want to sit there and learn four rule sets. My issue was, and something that I wasn't very empathetic about was I was bothered that I didn't know what the other three players were doing. I didn't know what they could do. I didn't really get what how it worked, and I didn't get their goal. So I felt like I was just playing for no reason. I was putting things out with no concept of how things worked. And then when somebody did something to me, I, I was mad because I, was like, I didn't know that could happen because it's my first play and I don't know what's going on in this game. So it took me the majority of the play before I and a lot of question asking before I knew 
what was going on. Yeah. No. And, and it comes back kind of the whole theme of this episode, like first impression, like this is a game that will reward repeated plays. But if you got stuck in that goblin role your first play, you might not want to continue on with this game because yeah. they are a very frustrating. And the, I mean, again, first game from this publisher, it was kickstarted, really successful project. The rules do need some work. I did love that they gave each player their rules basically on a one-sided sheet of paper. Yeah, I thought that was great. great but was great. there was a lot left out on the various roles because we had a ton of questions too. So don't feel alone. And I myself as the goblin had a ton of questions because, um, and I don't remember specifically what they were, but yeah, there was just some interactions that came about situationally. We're like, what do we do? And it wasn't answered in the rule book. So, yeah, you know, and that's things that that's something that can be fixed easily. That's a, an FAQ. That's a, you know, an errata or something like that. That's a, that's a very simple fix. Um, so, you know, I hope they keep with it. There's They're working on the Fast 2, which is going to include some new roles. Um, again, oh, okay. unique cool. <laughs> in the mechanics and everything. So, the glutton for punishment as far as playtesting is concerned. These guys, kudos right. to them. You know, yeah. David and Patrick. But, yeah, no, overall, I think it's a, I think it's a successful game. And I, I enjoy playing it. I'm not craving it all the time but i think it's gonna stay i think so so yeah yeah all right let's do let's do something else real quick and then let's round out the show dan do you want to talk about fight for olympus or deluvia project if we talk deluvia this could be another 30 minutes on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) all right let's talk about fight for olympus quickly so this is the uh which kramer is this matthew matthias matthias the best this is well not the best kramer because i love Wolfgang Kramer as well. You like him. Anyone with Kramer, you this can't is a go Kramer wrong. Game. If you see Kramer on the box of your board game, you're in for a good time. I think that's pretty safe assumption. Yes. So this is the new Matthias, Matthias Kramer game. This is a two-player game from the Mayfair two-player games line. Yes, Mayfair. And it follows suit with like Trombon and such. And a, a game that I knew I was... What did you say? And Patchwork. And Patchwork. A game that I knew I was going to buy pretty much instantly. I mean, with the designer, with the theme, with the game design, a two-player card game where the majority of the cards, if not all of the cards, are different individual cards. Lots to learn. The way that the game works is you have a center board and seven slots that you're placing cards into on your turn. The first thing you're going to do is play cards. The way that you play cards is with multi-use cards. Each card has a color or potentially is a wild card that factors as one of four colors, and each card has a cost requiring some of those colors. So if I have a card that costs two blues, I have to discard cards from my hand of that value. So you're spending your cards to play your cards. It's a little tricky like that. So lots of hand management. You place them into these rows, well, a row, these columns, And they're either going to get you victory points, they're either going to get you new tokens that allow you to play cards, or they're going to let you draw more cards. And you're going to attack your opponent's cards. They have a damage and a health value. They're going to deal damage across the board. They will not deal damage back, so it's one at a time. And then if there's no one across from you in that slot, you get to take the benefit of the space. Point of the game is to get to seven points, or fill your entire board at the start of your turn. So have all seven slots filled at the start of your turn. 
super interesting game. Uh, it's really quick, really light. Well, I don't know if light is fair. The The play feels light, but it is very thinky, trying to make the decisions. But very beholden to the card draw and the deck is what I've found. Now, you play, you just played this one, Stan? Yep. I played it once, and I won, so I'll give that up front, because I'm yeah, so, so great. good at this game. No, so anytime you have a card game where the cost of the cards to play them are other cards in your hand, it's always going to be thinky, and I'm probably going to enjoy it, because I like that crunch of the hand management that it provides. This one, again, being two players, just that kind of back and forth, it's just basically a tug of war the entire time. And I talked in one episode recently about Arena Roma 2, which was kind of Feld's take on a two-player duel game. So maybe it's just a thing about being German. You have to have a two-player two player duel game. Um, yeah. And I go back and forth on which one I like more. Because this one, as you mentioned, was very draw-dependent. But the the decks, I don't know how many cards are in the game, a lot. Um, each one is unique, if I do recall. Yeah. So there's a host of... So the aspect that I like in Fight for Olympus more than I liked in when I played Arena Roma a couple of weeks ago is that the i don't know the array of combo abilities is greater um however you know it's beholden to what you draw so if you draw into a really nice combo which i did and i was able to pull it off and i i got you in that one turn where i just turned the tables and got four points yeah and it was just playing two cards it worked out perfectly and that was very gratifying and satisfying and i love that and that's kind of that harks back to like our CCG days when you pulled off those like ha moments and yep. um, so yeah in that way I like Fight for Olympus um, much more because it was just the the ability to do that whether or not you do it fine but the game is quick enough that if you don't you just reshuffle and you can try it again um, I did like the laying out your cards kind of like in the dual row there and how each space kind of did something different, which was cool comparatively to the arena Roma, as I mentioned too, what I liked what Feld did was that you got to populate the space with the action that would be taken when you rolled the die for that slot, which I thought was a cool mechanic. So yeah, so they both do something different. I think I give the slight edge to fight for Olympus again, because it really, it really plays on my love for hand management as well as um, super combos. So I liked yep. it. The art was nice, um, especially for a, a Mayfair game. Um, <laughs> clean graphic design on the cards. Everything was pretty self-explanatory as far as what the cards did, which is very important when you have a card game that has X amount of unique cards in a small box. You don't have room for an Uwe Rosenberg size appendix kind of thing. So, you know, scores points on that. And so, yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot, actually. I think it, it gives me a lot of the Trombon feel. I like it more than Trombon, I think. I think I do as well. But that idea that it, it's almost in my mind, like a best of three kind of game, because if yeah. you can just get a, a sour hand sometimes in Trombon, you can just kind of get a sour draw. Yep. And it, and this is quicker than Trombon, too. So if you get that sour hand, you can get to game two. You could even concede and just get to game two quicker. Trombon yeah, you can, strings you along with that small hope, but you realize, you know, that hope was never there to begin with because <laughs> you drew exactly. into a crappy hand. Exactly. In my mind, this game is prone, not prone, but it, it's got that scoop option pretty readily. You can see 
how you're going to do. Now, sometimes you draw into cool combos that allow you to come back, but in my mind, you know, you look at your hand, you look for those combos, you fight for a couple of turns, and then you, you get into those kind of like, I'm just spinning wheels, I'm delaying the inevitable kind of thing. You scoop and you draw again. So I think that's kind of cool. It's a thinky two-player card game. It's right up my alley, and it's more of a board game than like a CCG kind of thing. So it's easier to play with someone like Kel than, you know, trying to break out a deck building like Netrunner or something like that. Yeah, it hands you the combos instead of you having to create them kind of thing. Exactly. Which is cool. And yeah, and again, comparing it to Trombon, because I think it's cool, but this Mayfair two-player games line is pretty solid. And Trombon's a good game, but you you know trombone is all about so if you you know you build these different tracks like you can just fall behind so quickly in that game in in fight for olympus you at least feel like you have a fight for olympus at some point in the game because ah, i see what you did you can it's like i said that tug of war f- effect is like you know just because matt's in that spot i can easily get him out of that spot it might not be the best play but i could you know what I mean? To kind yeah. of hit him that yeah. way. I can't do anything to you in Trombon. You know, once you get your rail engine going, the game's just a lost cause at that point, looking at the score pad kind of thing. Um, so, yeah. But, uh, yeah, overall, I'm very impressed with this Mayfair line. I hope they keep it up because, you know, Patchwork, Trombon, and Fight for Olympus. I'm not sure if there's any other ones yet in this line, but they've all been Is really the, damn good. Is uh, the La Havre thing in Inland there? Port, yeah, Inland Port might be now that they own, yeah. Because I think that came out before the merger. Um, oh, okay. But they may have put that in that line now. Either way, yeah, that's a good game too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think we've made some pretty successful purchases lately. Yeah. I'm I'm proud with... I'm proud of us. Yeah. We'll see once we get... <laughs> Are you proud of us, Dan? I'm very proud Thank of you. us. Once we get through my Essence stack, I'll report back. Because I'm hoping it... You know, at first glance, reading the rules and stuff, I don't think it's going to be as unsuccessful as my Gen Con stack was. So I'm very happy about that because I've made some good ones. We talked about two today that were excellent, and I'm looking forward to playing more. So Awesome. And I uh, recently acquired Cottage Garden and Capital Lux from you, so I've got my own little Essence stack Yep. to talk about. Happy to help. So That's lots of games coming up to talk about in the future, too. Yeah. I am going to say, though, I bought one game. I bought the um, Potions Brew. Which yeah. is the, it is the game. I think we've talked about it before that um, Spiel Museum in Germany that where Oh My Goods and Port Royal, where the Fister designed this game and the sales went to support the maintenance and running of this museum. So this year's was Potions Brew, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, but it wasn't Fister who designed it. And I read the rules, and I'm like, mm, I don't think I'm gonna like this. Like, no. <laughs> so mm. curious to play it. It's got a couple of interesting things, but I don't know. Thankfully, it was only six six bucks. So, and I oh, supported okay. the museum. So, yeah, it's cool. I feel good about it, but it's just another game that'll probably take up shelf space. Yeah. Well, we will see. We will talk about that on a future episode. We made it through episode 55, our first impressions romp, and we thank you all for joining us. If you ever want to reach out to us, you can do so at facebook.com slash the League of Nonsensical Gamers. You can choose the email at podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com. Guild.nonsensicalgamers.com takes you to BGG Guild number 2077. You can start up a conversation, chat about your top of the stack or anything else. You can also look for a free micro badge. Check us out on Instagram. Dan runs the Nonsensical Gamers Instagram, and I have my Cinnamon Buns Instagram. Both are chock full of board game photos. Uh, specifically our league Instagram is full of 
Mike's awesome board game photos that we post in the reviews. So check those out. Give them some likes. You can also give us some iTunes reviews if you enjoy the content and you'd like to provide some feedback, positive or constructive. We are open to all kinds of comments, so feel free to check out iTunes reviews for that. Thank you to our sponsor, Tasty Minstrel Games. You can check them out at playtmg.com, and we have a couple of good TMG games in our hands right now that we're going to be checking out. Specifically looking forward to talking about Oracle of Delphi. That is the one that I am going on and on about right now. So hopefully in an episode or two we'll be chatting about that. If you want to reach out to us, you can always do so on Twitter. That is the best place to find us to get a little personal or to chat board games. Tiff, who is not joining us here today, is at IneptGamer. Check her out there. You can find Dan at LeakNonsense or at Scandalous underscore Nad. And you can find me at Cinnamon Bun, spelled phonetically. Thank you all for joining us. We will see you next week with a little broadcast news. Say goodbye, Dan. Toodles. Bye.